I, I still, at 77, have no interest in impressing anybody. I, I, I just don't, and, and it's gone. I'm just a poet. I like what I write. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I'm Rob Kramer, founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. This week, we bring you Rob's interview with the legendary poet, Nikki Giovanni. Rob, there's so much to know about Nikki, but can you just give us a thumbnail introduction to her? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Piercarlo. Nikki is truly an American literary giant who beat her own path to greatness. In 1967, having just graduated from Fisk University with a BA in history, she created Cincinnati's first Black Arts Festival. She was unable to find uh, anyone to publish her poetry, so she self-published her first collection called Black Feeling Black Talk, which went on to sell literally over 10,000 copies in the first year alone. And in 1970, she created her own company, Nick Tom Limited. It's a publishing cooperative focused on highlighting the work of black women. Since then, she's written two dozen books, including volumes of poetry, illustrated children's books, and three collections of essays. And she's the recipient of literally countless honors and awards. Uh, And I'll just give you a few of them. Uh, The Langston Hughes Award, the inaugural Rosa L. Parks Women of Courage Award, several NAACP Image Awards, a Grammy nomination, and a spot on Oprah Winfrey's list of 25 living legends. She's the recipient of 27 honorary degrees, but perhaps garnered her most unusual honor in 2007 when a South American bat species, and I won't even try to pronounce its official name in Latin, was named in celebration of her. She has wow, taught and lectured. That to, me, that to me wins it all. He's named after you. And a bat. Oh, wow. Amazing. It really is. That's a first for us too, I have to say, on this show. So she's taught and lectured at universities all over the world and is currently a university distinguished professor at Virginia Tech, where she's been teaching since 1987. Nikki spoke to me from her home in Blacksburg, Virginia. I started our conversation by asking her what point in her career did she notice her art was having an influence on others and maybe on society at large? I I really, um, and I'm not trying to sound uh, humble or anything uh, because I'm not humble, but um, I I don't think of my writing as that. I think that my job is to, to respect the truth and to write what I, what I see, but I just soon write about, um, bird nest in, in spring as I would uh, uh, why a policeman should be executed for, for murdering, um, and I think he should be, executed for murdering um, uh, Rodney um, King or, or George Floyd. I don't, I don't think of myself you know, as, as leading, and you, know, you, you were talking about leading, and I don't think, I think writers that get into that are crazy. You know, they usually end up starting <laughs> churches. Have, have you noticed lately all these church people? I think that the, the main thing that we, or I don't want to speak for any other writer, but the main thing we, we do is that we, we try to, to, to say and put down words are our uh, paintings. And so we try to paint what we see. 
Sometimes we respond to the social justice systems, is what I'm trying to say, and sometimes we, we go and have a glass of wine and make love. We're not always <laughs> sitting around dealing with, with the social justice system. And uh, I would be uh, probably the first one to say, you know, after a while you get a little tired of it. I uh, have written a lot about social justice and injustice. And it, it, I was a history major in college, but I, was also, I am also interested in it. But after a while you get tired of it. After a while, there, there is something else in life beside white people being crazy. How, how do you maintain your resiliency through all this? I don't know. Life is an interesting... I, I, I think life is interesting. There, there's a t-shirt, as you probably know, that says life is good. And um, I don't know who how they got that started, but I couldn't agree more. Life is a good idea. And I say that uh, to my audiences when I... Now I'm... I'm uh, Everything is virtual, and and I do like uh, I like being with with people. I like being on, on uh, with an audience. But uh, you know, life is a good idea, and you know, if you were born, and if we're here, you were born, and we know that that being the case, one day you'll die. So there's no particular rush to do that. <laughs> there's no particular like, oh my goodness, I have to commit suicide because maybe if I don't, I won't die. You you will die. So you may as well try to sort of enjoy. This this life that you not sort of but enjoy the life that you have. Life is a good idea. Life is good, and I think one of the main things that that planet Earth needs to get just to 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 shed is these old uh, I don't know fifteenth century maybe further back than that these ideas of 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 race and and uh, caste and uh, nationalities. If uh, and I'm a space freak. If and when and I hope sooner than, than later, we spend more time in space and open Earth up to life forms that we, don't, that we now don't know. And the life forms will have to ask us, as, as everybody does, who are you? And we're going to have to answer. Well, I can't say I am, I'm a hokey, though I am, because they will look at me like, well, what's a hokey? And I, or I could say I'm, I'm from Virginia. <laughs> And they would say, what's what's a Virginia? They have no idea what we're talking about. The only thing that I could really answer that would be helpful to explaining to a Martian, and I'm going to call it a Martian because that's what I know it as, and, and the Martian says, well, who are you? Where are you from? And I, I would say Earth. And so I think it's way time that we teach our youngsters that, uh, one, we are Earthlings. We live on this planet, and we need to teach our youngsters to respect and to live with this this planet. And this is who you are. You're not white, you're not black, you're not religious, you're not whatever. You are an earthling. And then the rest of the earthlings ought to leave you alone and let you conduct your, your life in any responsible way you see fit. Do you, um, to what extent do you use your role as an educator, professor, to discuss these kinds of platforms with your students or the way they think about how their their work might influence the world? Does, does this affect the way you teach? Uh, it does. My students probably all, if you ask them and they were honest and, and they're good kids, I, I love teaching, they would probably say, well, you know, Nick is a little crazy, but we enjoy the class. What I want my students to do is to have faith in their own voice, to have trust in their own voice. And I teach writing classes. I teach writing for children's literature. I think children's literature, and I'm saying this as slowly as I know how, is the most important literature, period. It's all built on folk literature. It's how people 
who did not have the ability to read and write, who did not have the ability to have paper. It's how they told the stories to the next generation and the next generation. We who are Black Americans told most of our stories, not necessarily through folk, but there are a lot of folk uh, tales, but we told it through the spirituals. We, we shared the, the knowledge that we have, uh, that we had, and we still do, I think, through the spirituals. The other day I was uh, talking to someone and I was laughing because there's an old spiritual. And I said, you know, those people knew what they were talking about. There's an old spiritual that said, God's going to set this world on fire. Yes, yes, yes. God going to set this world on fire one of these days. Hallelujah. And I just love that because I, I'm sorry for the people who are dead in, in, in California. You know, I'm not sitting around wishing that people that don't have any particular reason to be dead are dead. But, uh, you know, you, you think about it. If 200 years ago, if, if you were... If you were at at, uh, at a, a homecoming, or I don't know how the, the enslaved got together, you're out in the forest uh, just wanting to praise the Lord, and and somebody said, God's going to set this world on fire, and everybody sort of joined in the song. And you wouldn't know, how would you know that 200 years from now that would be a totally appropriate song <laughs> as you watch the world be on fire, whether it's California or whether it's Australia? And we keep watching that. I, I love it. I said, oh, those folks knew what they were talking about. I teach children's literature, and I'm trying to say to my students, some of these things that we've heard make sense. Some of these things are prophetic. I'm, I'm a big fan of, 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 of spirit. I think that, that the spirit is meaningful. I think that we have something called the soul, and I have a lot of respect for your soul and, and for my own, and I want them to. But, and it's a big but, if you are going to be or want to be, or whatever, a writer, if writing is what, what you feel is your calling, you have to understand that you probably won't ever get any credit for it. It'll be 200 years before anybody knows what you did. And when you think about the great writers that we, we read today, when you think about that, who knew? that Emily, and I was laughing about that recently, but Emily Dickinson never lost her home. She never knew she was a great poet. The, the, the Bronte sisters never knew that they wrote great novels. And, and many of the theories that we, we hear, many of the people that, that uh, studied science, they never knew that they were right. So you don't do it for that reason. You do it, you do it so that you know what you've done. And 100 years from now, maybe other people will. But as a writer, you're almost never going to see that your work was significant. It just doesn't go that way. And... The sooner you let that go, the happier you're going to be with your career, with your life. In discussing historical writers, I asked her to tell me about which artists she followed closely as she was coming into her own. Thelonious Monk. I don't know if you know Thelonious Monk, but he's a pianist. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Thelonious is wonderful. But when Thelonious uh, began to be heard by other people. I don't want to, I almost said started his career, but he didn't start his career. He was playing the piano. Uh, I just read an interview with his mother. He was playing the piano at 11. But as he began to be heard, and people would say to, to, to Monk, you know, you can't play that. Those notes don't go together. That's the wrong note. And Thelonious said, and I will always remember that. I want a T-shirt that says that. It says, the piano don't have no, no bad <laughs> notes. And he's right. The piano does not have bad notes. They have notes that you haven't heard put together in a certain way. And Monk did that. He did it just 
did an, an incredible job. Now, I couldn't have appreciated and did not appreciate Thelonious Monk when I was in my teens. I just, I did not understand him. And he would play and it was like, okay, that's Thelonious Monk. And I didn't understand. I really didn't. But as I've gotten older, I've seen not only what he meant, but how he did it. And writers do that as, 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 a, as a poet. I have put together metaphors that I probably would not have done. Uh, I'm, I'm 75. No, I'm not. Goodness. I'm 77 years old. I, I put together metaphors that I wouldn't have been able to think about, let's say, 50 years ago in my 20s. I wouldn't have thought about it at all. But now that I'm older and I see things differently, I can share that which is why I don't, I don't read myself. I don't go back and, and read what I, what I wrote when I was in my 20s because I would say to myself, as Thelonious would I would say, oh, I made a mistake. And the piano don't have no note, bad notes, like poetry doesn't have bad images. It's just that you learn more and do better. So along with Monk, who else influenced you as you were developing as an artist? Well, I read everything. I, I read Darren, of course, and I was going to be one of the uh, earlier people. Mostly, I, I, of course, listened. I sat on the porch. I lived with my grandparents. And I sat on, well, I lived with my parents who had a bad marriage. And I've been writing about, or, <laughs> and again, now we say there's no such thing as a bad marriage. It just didn't suit me. And since I wasn't married to either one of them at that point, I went to live with my grandparents. And my grandparents were uh, very kind to let me come and live with them. And I would listen to those stories. And of course, grandmother and grandpapa were um, the church people. So you knew that every Sunday morning, what you were going to do, you, you're going to go to Sunday school, which was a good idea. And then you, you got a nickel. And I didn't realize uh, un, until recently to make me cry. What? See, grandpapa was, was retired when I went to live with them. What it must have cost them to give me a quarter, which is what they did. I had to put a nickel in, in Sunday school, and then I had to, the nickel for ice cream, and then I had to put money, uh, the, the rest of it, you had to put in church collections. And so to give me that quarter took a lot because Grandpapa, he was a school teacher, and he was a black man who taught school. So you can imagine in Knoxville, Tennessee, he didn't have any money. And yet Grandmother, who was always great at that, found that quarter for me every Sunday. And I didn't realize, you know, the kids would go, we went to, to Carter Roberts, it was called. To, uh, we'd go to Sunday school, put your nickel in. And after Sunday school, we had that, that hour before church. And we'd go and get ice cream. And it took me until relatively recently to realize, how did she get that quarter? What, what did she do to, to, to find that? that quarter because grandmother never worked. And, and let's say never worked. Uh, women always worked, but she never was paid for, for her work. She, and I, I still don't know. I don't know where she got it. I, and it's amazing to me that she had said, when I said, can I come and live with you? May I come and live with you? <laughs> she said, I'll, I'll ask John Brown, which is not what is going to happen. That I did know that uh, it was going to be her decision. And now all of a sudden, a man who is making very little money because he is retired and she is not having a job, they have another mouth to feed. They have something else to do. And to this day, I am uh, very, I'm very picky about food. I, I don't eat a lot. 
it takes a lot for me to get excited. I, I eat what is put before me, and that's the truth. It, grandmother would, uh, would she, she cooked, and whatever grandmother cooked, and she would fix the plates. And so whatever she fixed, I ate. I didn't want any more. I didn't, it was, no, can I have a second helping? I want none of that. I ate it. And, of course, I was the one who washed the uh, dishes. And I was just writing about that. And I began writing about the things that I've learned that I, I could not possibly have known 50 years ago when I was in my 20s. But now I do. I, I understand. And I don't know why I knew even back then that whatever they gave me was what I had. And I was not going to ask for any more. So grandmother finally said to me, you know, you, you need some clothes. And I did say to her, no, I'm, I'm fine. I, I don't need anything else. I, I'm, I'm fine. And I remember I had a, a, a brown skirt and uh, I had a dress. And she's, no, no, you have to go. And it was a store, Richard's department store. Richard's was, was prejudiced. And uh, Richard started in Atlanta. Some people who are listening to this may know Richard's. But grandmother had a, a, a charge account at Richard's. And I, again, I don't know how. And she said, no, you have to have more clothes. And so she took me and bought me uh, a, another couple of dresses, another couple of skirts, which I had until I went to college. Because I, I would never ask for any of that. Because it, it did occur to me, where would they get the money to buy clothes for me? And who was I trying to impress? And so as I am talking to you, I'm not trying to impress you. I, I still, at 77, have no interest in impressing mm. anybody. I, I, I just don't. And, and it's gone. I'm just a poet. I like what I write, and I, I do the best I can. I read it, and I read other people. But I'm not going to get tied up in, oh, I wonder who will think this. And I say that to my students. I can't think of anything dumber than sitting around wanting to please somebody that you don't even know or wanting. I don't have, never have had an agent. And my students will ask me about that. Well, how do you get an agent? I mean, come on. That, that doesn't even make sense. I, I, I don't and didn't. And uh, what I have is the poetry. Let's, let's start with, as I say to them, what's important? And have an agent. Who, who had an agent? You think Newton had an agent? You think Plato had an agent? I mean, you think Socrates had an agent? Get over it. Let's, let's do the work and, and we'll deal with what, what's left behind. I asked her if at this point in her career she thought of herself as an elder, and if so, whether that came with any responsibility. I'm a nice person, and, and my grandmother, I think I'm nice. I'm not friendly, and I say that all the time. People laugh, say, yes, you are, but I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm really not friendly, but <laughs> I am nice. So if you write me, I will write back. And I grew up in the Christian church in AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And we were taught, you know, to, to try to comfort not only the sick, but, but those in prison. So I write uh, actually several prisoners who, who have been writing me for a long time. And they just don't have anybody. One, one gentleman, Daryl Lamont Bailey, and uh, Daryl has been writing me for 33 years, and or I've been we have been writing each other for 33 years because Daryl is in uh, prison for life, and it's not likely that um, he will be released. And he's three years uh, younger than I am, and he doesn't know his grandchildren or his great grandchildren at all. So in many respects, I have become um, his family. So you're saying, well, am I an elder? I I don't. 
I just think of my responsibility to people who reach out um, to me. But when my youngest aunt, I'm, I'm the baby in my family, in the Giovannis, I'm the baby. And the Watsons, my grandmother and grandpapa, had three daughters, my mother, Yolanda, um, my second aunt, Anne, and my baby aunt, Agnes. And they had, mommy had two daughters. Agnes, the, the baby, had uh, two sons, and Anne had a son and a daughter. So the, the, uh, the home became um, balanced. And mommy died, and right shortly after that, which is very sad, uh, my, my middle aunt died because she and, and mommy were, were very close. Not that Agnes wasn't, because Ag, uh, Ag was very strong and, and aware of things. But when mommy died, my sister, as I said, I was the baby. Gary died three or four weeks later, and then um, my Aunt Anne died, leaving actually Agnes as the elder. And that worked because um, Agnes was always one of the strongest people. But when Ag died, which has been a, a couple of years now, that left me as the oldest person. And I hadn't thought about being an elder of the Watsons. And something happened. I really don't remember what now. But my cousin, I only have one girl cousin, Pat, because she's the only one left. Uh, we are the two women left. And Pat called me to ask a question. And I, I, I think I said something, Pat, I don't know why you're calling me. She said, well, you're the elder now. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I hadn't thought. I am the elder. And I thought, yeah, that does give me responsibilities. So when people get sick, I have to get on a plane. And I don't mean it like that. It's not a burden, but I go. When my cousin Terry died, I had to be there. He lived far away, but I had to be there for for his funeral because, again, I'm the elder. I hadn't thought about what does it mean. And so when strangers write me and say, oh, I read you when I was in the fourth and fifth grade, I was thinking, oh, my goodness. And uh, I write back and say, thank you. You know, you just try to be polite, but I'm not, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying. I'm, I'm not trying to run some cult. I'm, I'm not Jim Jones or, or Marcus Garvey or Donald Trump. I, I don't want any of that. I just want to do what I'm supposed to do, and uh, I try to be nice about it. But I also know that there's a, a great part of myself that uh, I'm not letting anyone in, and uh, that will be the case until the day I die. That, that that I know that there's a part of me that belongs to me, and uh, there's some level, I guess the term would be privacy, but there's some part, and I say that to my students too, writing is a lonely profession. And if you don't hold on to that loneliness, you, you can't continue the writing. I'm so thrilled you got to speak with her. I know. Now, she made it pretty clear early in the interview, as you recall, that she was not interested in thinking of herself as leader. Oh, yes. But you and I, right? Yeah, all of us would disagree with her. So is it possible we could all be wrong? What do you think? Well, no, I mean, going back to discussions we've had on this podcast before, Pierre Carlo, she's a great example of what we would call an indirect leader, where she puts things out in the world that have an impact on others and creates followership mm -hmm. that way. So it's through her writing and her contributions primarily that she's known globally. And that would be called in our world, indirect leadership and a great example of indirect leadership. I also think she is a leader in the classroom, you know, um, right. clearly the direct influence on her students and 
those relationships, which the few that are lucky enough to be able to study with her get to experience that. So those, I would say, are accurate from our lens. From her lens, I can absolutely see why she would be adamantly opposed to calling herself a leader. That's not how you know, she views herself. She views herself as a poet and that's it. You know, she doesn't want to stray from her core identity. Which I guess is why people trust her in particular, because she's not interested oh. in, in throwing out any other image than just I'm doing my work. I'm totally. standing behind my work. She's very authentic, clearly. Right. And she's hundred percent not apologetic for being who she is. You know, she doesn't concern herself with when her art is going to make an impact or why she just writes because she writes and that's what she does. And that's what she tells her students to do. She says, don't focus on trying to be a superstar or how do I get an agent? You know, I love when she talked about that. That's not the process. <laughs> and for us artists, we know the process is to do the work. And when you're doing that other stuff, you're distracted from really doing what you're meant to do as a true artist and artist leader. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this particularly authentic voice to us. Right? Oh yeah. You're so welcome. If you'd like to learn more about Nikki, please go to uncsa.edu slash artists as leader. And if you enjoy this episode, please let us know by leaving us a rating or comment wherever you get your podcasts. If you admire artist leaders in your own community that you'd love us to profile in future episodes, please shoot us an email at keenanarts at uncsa.edu. Our theme music is by The Dimes. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Piercarlo Talenti. Thanks for listening. <laughs>